Amen. Thank you to Sean who jumped in last minute for, to fill in for Jeremy with uh, just a few days notice. And uh, thank you to Jennifer and Daniel as well. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, um, what a contrast between the scripture that we're looking at this morning and that song. Uh, a scripture which is informing us of the reality of uh, those who deceive that come in amongst um, in amongst the church and, and seek to pull people away, seek to detract from you, and yet we rejoice in the song that we sang, the, the reminder that the day is coming where we will feast with you, where there will be no more tears or shame or sin. And so, Father, we hold those things uh, in conflict with one another, that we would be reminded of of the reality of heaven and the reality of what we have been saved to, but also the reality of what we live in at this moment. So Father, give us ears to hear, uh, minds to understand, and hearts to believe as we turn to your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we talked about our secure position in Christ, how positionally we are in Christ and we stay in our lane, so to speak, which is a, a privileged and a secure place. We don't stray out of bounds being ruled by our instincts, those things being in conflict with one another, but rather we are ruled by Christ. Well, this morning we're looking again at the sins and the, the falsehoods that came from certain people who have wormed their way into the church, as Jude puts it. And I think at this point, it's important for us to remember, because we are spending quite a lot of time on this, that we be asking why Jude seems to be teaching this so forcefully. Well, we ask ourselves, what did Jesus teach on this? And so we look at Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13. Where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter in yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. I, I think we can become so accustomed to a, a, a watered-down attitude that when we come against something quite strong, we're actually alarmed by it. Strong language is not something that we want to use for no reason, but it makes you wonder why we don't hear denunciation of false teaching more often. Is it that we think that the false teaching does no harm? Is it that we are not concerned with it? Is it that we don't care? Is it that we... We don't believe, or maybe we don't know the difference. We cannot recognize false doctrine when it comes. When I was younger, I, I didn't watch cartoons. I watched This Old House. And um, on Sunday mornings before church, I watched Robert Tilton and his program, Success in Life. Don't know why he just put the N in there. Uh, and one time we had a, a family friend that was um, asking for prayer for healing. 
And so we gathered together as a family and we were praying over her and I must have been waving my hand in the air like this. And um, afterward, dad asked me, he said, where did you get that from? And I said, well, on Sunday morning, I watched this preacher that prays like that. He waves his hand. And uh, I guess I was fascinated with his charisma and his Holy Spirit promptings. You know, he'd be in the middle of teaching quite poorly a lesson and, oh, did you feel that? Oh, did you hear that? Oh, you know, constantly. And I thought, oh, this is exciting. Like, hey, who wouldn't want that? Sadly, I had not yet read uh, Jude's epistle at the age of nine that we are called to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, that there's no new revelation. Well, for those of you who don't know, Tilton was a total charlatan, uh, married three times, and he was swindling unsuspecting and undiscerning people and was raising $80 million a year for this ministry. I think they found uh, a bunch of the prayer envelopes were discarded at the back of a bank. So he was essentially taking all the money out, depositing it, and throwing the prayer requests away. Terrible. This is why it's important that we are sitting under the authority of the word of God and allowing it to speak into our lives. They were allowing God to speak into our lives through his word. The, the, to tear things out that, that detract and distract us from God. Allow God to minister to our pains through his word. Allow God to teach us uh, uh, so that we can grow through his word and teach us so that we know what is truth and what is falsehood. Jude wanted to write to his recipients about their common salvation And yet, as we read at the beginning, instead, he's warning them about the dangers that surround them. Now, again, in previous weeks, we've seen that these heretics pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen Old Testament examples of judgment which came upon those who defiled the flesh, rejected authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. And this week, we see not only what happens to the offenders, but what happens to those who follow them. And all of this ties to what we are going to look at in a week or five weeks time, depending on how slowly we go through this, uh, in verses 22 and 23. That was a joke, by the way. I don't think it'll take five weeks to get like five verses from now, but you never know. Uh, Verses 22 and 23, but you, beloved, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. We contend not only by standing for what is true and right, but also by showing mercy and sharing truth with those who are being led astray. And I'm sure many of us know people who have been led astray by false teaching. A friend of mine from college who went to a a really liberal seminary, he wanted to have his faith tested, he said. And a year or two into his studies there, he was completely lost. Uh, Another friend and I were actually just discussing him the other day, and we agreed that he cannot stray so far as to outrun 
God's mercy and grace and forgiveness, which is made available, uh, but as of yet, he still goes down this sad path of destruction. So what does Jude tell us about those who follow in this way? Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Lots of uh, Old Testament examples, three Old Testament examples here. Let's look at them one by one. First, he says they walked in the way of Cain. What is this in reference to? As Cain murdered his brother, these people murdered the souls of others. Cain had no love for his brother. He resented Abel's approval and his good deeds. And in Hebrews 11.4, Abel is the very ideal of faith. And Cain, thus, is the exact opposite of the believing and trusting man. He stands for the, the cynical, materialistic character who defies God and despises man. Cain wanted approval with God on his terms. He wanted to be the one that decided the terms. With the, the, the sacrifice or the act of obedience that he decided, that he selected. The way of Cain involves denying that there is any such thing as absolute right and wrong. And that God will never judge our muddled world by his absolute standards. Well, then Jude continues, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam, the, the pagan prophet who was three times prevented from cursing Israel, and this is found in Numbers uh, chapter 22 through 24. You have uh, Balak, the, the king of Moab, and he sees that the Israelites are encroaching and getting closer to his land, and he's becoming fearful. And so he calls on this man, Balaam, uh, who is, a, a, again, a pagan prophet of the time. And uh, he brings him, uh, calls him in to call curses down uh, on the Israelites. But God tells Balaam uh, uh, to, to instead not call curse on them because they're a blessed people. And so he refuses the king's initial invitation, but then the king of Moab comes and he offers great riches. He promises riches and Balaam is enticed to the point where God has to rebuke Balaam through a speaking donkey, or as we refer to it as the Shrek passages of the Bible. And every time that Balaam tries to curse the Israelite people, he instead finds himself blessing them. But here's the thing. Balaam did find a way to bring curse on the Israelites. The Apostle John says in Revelation chapter 2, Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block uh, before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. After Balaam is pre uh, prevented from cursing Israel by God, 
The next episode in Israel's history, uh, history is related to the issue of the fact that the Israelite men were, were, were caught in sexual immorality with the Moabite women, and we find that in Numbers 25. And it's only later in the book of Numbers that we find out that, that it was Balaam who was behind that strategy of causing those men, the Israelite men to stumble. So, so what got the best of Balaam was his greed. So he had an experience where the Lord came and spoke to him. And he says, don't curse these people, bless them. And he says, fine, I won't, I'll leave it. And he told Balak, I'm not, I have no, want nothing to do with this. But then it's sort of, hey, we'll give you lots of silver and gold and houses and all these sorts of things. And he, he instead of recognizing and submitting to God, who he's got this experience with, and instead trying to bless Israel as God certainly wanted him to do, Balaam starts mulling over the position in his mind and seeking another way to secure the downfall of Israel so that he can secure blessings for himself. As with Cain, he was faced with a clear statement from God and then he decides not to obey, to go against that. And it's sadly because he's one of the most informed Gentiles about God's plan for Israel. He actually hears from the living God and still chooses to go another way. There are two things that stand out about Balaam's story. One, he stands for the covetous person who was prepared to sin in order to gain reward. And second, he stands for the evil person who was guilty of the greatest of all sins, that of teaching others to sin. So Jude is saying that the heretics of his day were leaving the way of righteousness to make gain, and they were teaching others to sin. Uh, To sin for the sake of gain is bad, but to teach another to sin is worse. And then finally, Jude says, they perished in Korah's rebellion. Another man who was careless with God's clear instruction and who refused to submit to God's will. Korah, who led a rebellion against Moses and the sons of Aaron, uh, who were made priests of the nation, that was a decision that Korah was unwilling to accept. And in turn, Moses warns all who are with Korah in his camp that they should leave them uh, lest they perish. Then Korah and all who decided to stay with him and, and, and his followers are swallowed up by the earth. Swallowed up by the earth. The judgment for all who go the way of these people. John Stott says of this, once again in Korah, we have a man who ruminates over God's order of things and decides that God cannot have meant what he said. As we reach this ghastly climax, it is worth remembering again that the people Jude describes here are not at all easy to spot. If they were, he would not have had to write this letter. Do you see how subtle spiritual warfare can be. Do you see how quietly and and quickly falsehood can enter and spread? 
The truth of the matter is that such men and women can appear to be very nice people who in fact are dangerous rebels. You're all looking at the person next to you and wondering, could this be one of them? Just kidding. Uh, again, look at, look at Balaam. He looks very faithful. He looks spiritual in Numbers 22 to 24. And, and, and Cain looks very religious in, in his offering of a sacrifice. And, and many people today would say that Korah was simply an advocate for all people being allowed to be priests. He, he was a progressive thinker. The evil in these men really doesn't fully surface until they face the authoritative no from God or his revelation. And so we see Jude continues on some, of the, uh, some new imagery and he continues by using these five metaphors to describe the character of these heretics that have infiltrated the church. Hidden reefs at community meals Clouds without rain, trees without fruit, wild waves of the sea, and wandering stars. He's pretty much used every image he can get from sky and earth and and everything around him. Hidden reefs at community meals. What are the love feasts that Jude mentions here? Well, they seem to be community meals on the Lord's Day or or the Lord's Supper, why why are these important? Because it was a time of deep fellowship with the church community. Paul describes how these were being abused in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He writes, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, but when you come together, it is, uh, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? And these were some of the types of people who were causing such grief in these types of meals. Plus, there was an opportunity for teaching at these feasts. And so they are described as hidden reefs, showing that they weren't entirely visible for uh, what they were trying to do. It wasn't immediately apparent. You know, we read stories like uh, Balaam and and Korah and and Cain, and we say, well, yeah, yeah, we all knew that. But it's not immediately apparent. These people were part of the body, and they were subtly swaying the way that people thought, very subtly, step by step by step by step by step by step. Or they're subtly teaching people to cave into their, their, their natural uh, animal instincts, as we saw last week. And they do this without fear. Jude describes them as shepherds who feed themselves. Now, the duty of the shepherd is to feed the flock. That's what we're doing right now, right? 
I'm, I'm, we're, we're looking at the scripture, we're, we're investigating it, we're dig, digging deep, trying to uh, unearth great gems and truths that uh, enrich us and encourage us and equip us and build us up. But the shepherd who feeds himself is no shepherd at all. One commentary translates this as, they have no feelings of responsibility for anyone except themselves. That's what you would expect from the world, right? That's what you would expect from those who are ruled by their natural animal instincts. They're just looking out for what? It's survival of the fittest. We're only looking out for ourselves. That's not what you expect in the body of believers. Because in the body, the scripture talks about confessing sins to one another. That, that's, a, that's a position of a lot of vulnerability. So if you're having that position of vulnerability and not being fed or taken care of or loved, that makes things very difficult. The, the, the Bible is so clear about the importance of the fellowship of believers. The Christian walk is not a solo walk. I found this quote from Charles Spurgeon the other day that I found quite apt. Spurgeon writes, I believe that every Christian ought to be joined to some visible church. That is his plain duty according to the scriptures. God's people are not dogs, else they might go about one by one, but they are sheep, and therefore they should be in flocks. And I'm sure that Spurgeon would continue on to explain the importance of being under an under-shepherd. Jesus is obviously the good shepherd, we read in John chapter 10, but he appoints leaders under his authority over the flocks. Just as he did with Aaron's sons and Korah and his gang, they rejected that authority. And in perhaps a more subtle way, these heretics do the same. I remember back in, in Sydney, there was a, a, an older man that was in part of our congregation, and he was going around and spreading false rumors uh, about our senior minister. And he would just blatantly tell me these lies of stories from his past and his life. And I thought, that doesn't sound right. It's completely off. And then he would say, oh, yes, and the archbishop's well aware of it. He's going to take care of it. And I thought, Archbishop Glenn Davies, who's a friend of mine, like, should we get him on the phone and maybe have this conversation together? But he was subtly trying to chip away at the, at the shepherd's integrity. He was slowly trying to chip away. And who knows what people in our congregation were affected by that. And so we had to treat him as if he was a wolf. He was an unbeliever. He was, a, he was there to, to, to create problems. Second, they are clouds without rain, carried along by the wind, a metaphor for a form of hypocrisy that, that, that fails to produce what is promised. Jesus offers the woman at the well living water, water that never runs out, always restores, always refreshes. A waterless cloud promises living water, but it will leave you chasing the wind. If the wind keeps blowing the waterless cloud around and you keep chasing it for what it promises, eventually you will be left in an arid place without water. 
If you chase the false teachings and the the promises made by these people, eventually you will have no proper bearing on where you are. Don't get so lost chasing the wind that you forget where living water has always been. Third, trees without fruit. Like trees that fail to bear fruit in harvest time, the lives of these people are barren and fall under God's judgment. Twice dead, uprooted. Uprooted, and I'm sure we can all relate to this from last week, uprooted because of a strong wind that maybe blew in. And because there's no proper strengthened root system in this tree. And it's shown for what it is. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Fourth, wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame. The sea is almost, almost, uh, almost always imagery for uh, chaos and danger in the scriptures. Wild waves are implying it's a bad storm. They are untamed, they are wild, they're dangerous. We've seen what untamed, wild, and and dangerous looks like as we see violence in our streets over the last several months. Those are people unruled by God. These people are the same, but they're in the church. And Jude says, they cast up the foam of their own shame. In an honor and shame culture, the the fear of disgrace marks the person of honor who alone is capable of achieving a life of virtue and thus experiencing happiness. The, The honorable person recognizes and lives by the values established within the community. When a person violates those values, the result is shame. Now, we have a lot of honor and shame cultures in this world that do that incorrectly, right? And they heap on shame that's not deserved because honor is completely broken and misunderstood in the broken system. But these heretics are completely unbound by any moral standard, And therefore, they're out of control. There is no proper sense of of shame. Uh, Even a young child begins to understand shame, right? Uh, If your child uh, hits someone or does something they know they're not supposed to do, they often, what, they run away, they hide. There's an understanding of, of, of a reaction to shame. And these people, who are adults, have none. Well, fifth and finally... They are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. People caught in error, leading others in their path. It's like planets that are aimlessly lost in darkness forever. 
Just as Korah and his rebellion are swallowed up into the earth, into darkness forever, so is the fate of these heretics that do not, uh, do not recognize the Lord. They blaspheme against him. They follow the ways of the flesh. They embrace error and they deceive in the present, but their judgment is sure and will endure forever. And, and to be honest with you, the time I've spent looking over that, it's so sad. It's so sad to see and know that there are people that are just walking blindly into darkness that you understand from a biblical perspective is eternal damnation and eternal judgment. And I, 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 I struggle to come up with words to explain that. I think in some sense we, we recognize it and understand it, but, but, the, but the reality seems so distant from us. There's so much imagery uh, in these three, four verses. So many examples and so many metaphors. You, you can feel Jude uh, going to such great lengths to warn the church. He doesn't want them to miss it. He doesn't want one of them to go this way down the path of eternal destruction and his heart is for the people just as a true shepherd would be. Jesus' heart is for his people, the good shepherd. I hope you don't hear me saying that we can lose our salvation. What this is saying is that we don't take it for granted the Bible is, the word of God is grace in calling us to repentance. It is grace in reminding us what to steer clear of. And it is grace that we are eternally saved. Those things can sound like they're in conflict with one another. This is the, the, the beauty of scripture. This is the beauty of our, of our reality as believers. It's both and. The danger is for those who have perverted grace for themselves. They are uh, in church communities and they are enticing people to sin, but scripture and Jude and good churches warn against this mindset. Oh, what grace that we would read this and our hearts would burn within us at the reality of eternal damnation, at the reality of, of lostness. But a person can come into a community who does not recognize that and, and actually rejects that, but comes into the community and seeks to do whatever pleases them. Because they don't understand, like we talked about last week from Ephesians, that we are seated in the heavenlies, but we still are called to walk out the faith that's been given to us. We're called to stand against the, the spiritual warfare that takes place. So there's security, but there's also warning. It's, it's two things that we have to hold in tension. And I want us to feel the weight of what Jude is saying here. That we would comprehend the eternal weight and the importance of these warnings for ourselves, for our friends and our family, for our neighbors. There is a wide path that leads to destruction and there's a narrow path that leads to life. Uh, let's ask that the Lord would help us in these things. Lord, we, 
We want you to make us more and more aware of these dangers that are around us. (laughs) These dangers that desire to ensnare us. To lead us chasing after waterless clouds. Help us, Father, to see the sufficiency in Christ. Help us to dwell in the word that shows us light and life. Help us to rightly understand good fellowship and co-labor together as your people. Help us to understand the riches of what you have given to us, of the, the assurance of salvation, of the fellowship of believers. And putting on that new self and taking off the old self and rejecting the old man and the things that seek to detract us from you, Lord. Remind us of the good things. Show us where we fall short. Show us where things are tugging our hearts in the other direction. Oh, Father, that the day would come where we can also, as Jude says, save others from the clutches of those things. That we would show it with grace and mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.